Hi, I'm Adam Cooper, bringing you Season 5 of The Mediator Studio. We recorded most of the seven episodes in June 2023, before the Gaza war began. While some episodes reflect events predating the war, we're sure that insights are as relevant as ever about seeking peace in the region. Enjoy the new season, and thank you for joining us. I learned how to be patient, how to listen to things that I don't like, how to listen to people in the first step of my mission, and later on I came back with idea or with suggestions. Nobody can have whatever he wants. Okay, you have to convince those people, first of all, that you cannot get 100% from what you want. You have to reduce their ambition in the beginning and start working in your proposal. Welcome to The Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper, and I'm coming to you from a very special edition of the Oslo Forum. Having started out as a small gathering in 2003, the Forum is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Participants from around the world have come to discuss how to resolve the major conflicts of our day. Yemen, Sudan, Afghanistan, the war in Ukraine. My guest today was until recently the head of Lebanon's intelligence agency, the General Directorate of General Security. During his long career, he has brokered deals to free Western detainees in Syria and Iran, and has dealt with the Palestinian factions in Lebanon to calm the explosive situation in the refugee camps. More recently, he was a prime mover in the agreement signed last year to end the 10-year dispute between Lebanon and Israel over gas fields under their contested maritime border. General Abbas Ibrahim, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Thank you very much. It's my honor to be with you tonight. You were born in southern Lebanon, and at the age of 19, you began three years of military training, later gaining degrees in military science and business administration. I want to begin by taking you back to your youth, if I may. Yeah, please. Following decades of tensions, Israel invaded southern Lebanon in 1982 and occupied large parts of it for nearly two decades. The invasion triggered the 1982 Lebanon War, which saw the Israelis seize Beirut and the Palestinian Liberation Organization flee to Tunis. Tell me about your personal story from that time and those early experiences of the conflict with Israel. In 1982, I graduated from the military school. I was a cadet at that time. I graduated. And I had to go to my military position, passing through the Israeli checkpoints, which is very harmful for me as officer. And I feel shy every time I had to pass through this checkpoint. And I, feel, I felt that we lose our dignity as Lebanese people how when it comes to be an officer, I have to defend my country against any enemies. So it was very harmful for me. Then they moved me to south of Lebanon. Things become much more harmful for me. I have to, to pass more checkpoints every morning to go and reach my position and in my way back home at that time. So this is my impression that I have, I still kept it till today. And in the 1982 invasion in particular, what do you remember from that time? Yeah, in, in 1982, uh, the Israeli, as you said, they came over and they seized the, uh, the capital itself, Beirut. 
and it was a big chaos and shelling between the Israeli forces and the PLO forces at that time. And the people were suffering, and we had Sabra and Shatila massacre later on. And you can imagine how difficult it was at that time. You also received military training in America and Britain in the 1980s, and you've been widely regarded as one of the few officials that the U.S. could work with to free detainees held in places like Syria and Iran, which we'll talk about later. What did you think of the U.S. on your first trip there? Oh, my first trip in America was in 1982 for this advanced course in Georgia, Fort Benning, as an infantry officer. Then later on, I joined the Special Forces. I can say, I don't like to, to say that, but I like the American lifestyle. I was very affected by that. I spent eight months there. The people were very welcoming at that time. But the problem that the war was taking place in my country, the civil war, and my family was behind me, and I was always worried. To be frank, I still like to go there, but things are changing in America these days. The people, they are not as used to be. Well, we'll talk a little bit more later about the U.S. role and geopolitics in the region. But in 1989, you become head of security for the Arab League envoy to Lebanon, Lakta Brahimi. Yeah. And you were also a senior security official for President Elias Rawi, a post you held until 1992 when you took over the role of protecting the newly appointed Prime Minister, Rafik Hariri. These people must have faced serious security threats from yes, a range of yes, groups. Yes, for sure. Did you try to gain the trust of groups who might have been hostile to these people? And if so, how did you do that? You know that you have many parties on the ground and every party has his own goal and how he controlled the country in a way. So I used those people, let me say so, to be frank, as sources. <laughs> so that's why I protect those people used all the means that I have it. And I used to have many sources around me to give me information in advance and to know how uh, to deal with those people. When Prime Minister Hariri had been assassinated, I was the commander of the commandos regiment in the army. I wasn't with him at that time. How did you feel when that happened? I was in my office. I was in the mountain, I looked at Beirut, and I felt that this is Rafael Hariri. The first thing that I did it, I called Saad al-Hariri and Baha al-Hariri to, to ask about their father, and nobody responded. And I went to the place when this explosion took place, and I asked about him, and they told me that he's at the hospital. And you know later on what happened. I was in a very good, excellent relation with Prime Minister Hariri. It must have been a difficult day for you. Yeah, very difficult, very difficult. You have sat next to many senior people in your career. How does sitting alongside people like Lakta Brahimi, a great mediator, and leaders of your country through real moments of crisis prepare you for your future role as a mediator later on? Yeah, I learned a lot from those people, especially Akhdar Ibrahimi. As you said, he was a great mediator. I learned how to be patient, 
how to listen to things that I don't like to listen to it <laughs> and smile. <laughs> okay, how to listen to people in the first step of my mission. And later on, I gather all this mission. I came back with idea or with suggestions. Nobody can have whatever he wants. Okay, you have to convince those people, first of all, that you cannot get 100% from what you want. You have to reduce their ambition in the beginning and start working in your proposal. That's what I learned from Al-Akhdar Ibrahim. And in your security roles, you, you've had to work between different factions in Lebanon. Talk me through how you, you did that, how that prepared you for a future mediation. Yeah, the Lebanese are very hard in negotiation and they are very stubborn, especially when it comes to politics. And that's why maybe we are still in chaos. But during my career, I can say that I built a trust with many of those parties. Can I ask how you actually went about building trust with some of those groups? I don't know how they perceived you as a Shia Muslim by background and what you did to, maybe if they were skeptical at the beginning, to, to win their confidence. Yeah, the secret word is to be sincere and loyal with everyone, to be transparent with everyone. You don't have to have hidden agenda when you want to be a mediator, at least at the end of your mission. In the beginning, as I said, you have to listen and you have to let people think that you understand their fears or their demands but at the end, you have to come with acceptable proposal by everyone. Let's talk about how you use that approach with Palestinian factions in Lebanon. Yeah. Between 2005 and 2008, you were head of the intelligence bureau in the south of Lebanon, putting you on the front lines of the unrest in the Palestinian refugee camp of Ain el-Hilwe, the largest Palestinian camp in Lebanon, which was seeing serious unrest. How did you go about working with the uh, various different groups to calm the situation? Yeah, at that time it was a very difficult time. And I want to know that there was a big war between the Lebanese army and the Palestinian camp people inside Nahr al-Barid camp. And I want you to know that Ain al-Hilwi camp is a small camp with one kilometer square and it has about 100,000 people. You can imagine the condition of life those people are living in. So when the war started in Nahr al-Barid, I was the head of intelligence in south of Lebanon, I decided to go inside the camp and talk to the people directly. It wasn't allowed by our government because for 30 years, no official figure has or allowed to go inside the camp. But I decided to go over the law, and I decided to meet those people in person. I called uh, one general whose name is Munir al-Ma'da, and I told him I want to send you a letter with my driver. But I want you in person to go to the checkpoint and get it from him. He doesn't know me in person. Then I drive my car to the checkpoint. I found him there. I get out of my car, I sit next to him. He asked me, where's the letter? I said, I want to hand this letter to you inside the camp. That's what my general said. And he drove. And in our way, I told him, I am General Ibrahim. 
and he was shocked. He stopped. And he told me, please, you cannot go inside the camp. There are many extremist organizations in the camp, and you create us a problem. I said, no, I want to go. And this is my responsibility. We went to his house. We drink juice. And he got me abricot, and he told me this abricot is from Palestine, this, this tree. And I, want, I told him we want to walk inside the camp. And he become, became crazy. How come you cannot? I told him I want to. It is my responsibility, and I assumed it. We walk, and hundreds of armed people were around us. And I saw by my eyes how those people are miserable, how they live how the streets are narrow, it's a bad condition. So I asked him, I told him, I, I want to meet the extremist organization, the Islamic. And he told me how Because they had infiltrated the camp and yeah, were causing Yeah, they are unrest. inside and they are controlling a big part of the camp. He refused in the beginning, then he called them, they told him, give us culture hours to take decision. Then they said, he's welcome. I went to their places. I had four hours meeting with those people. At the end, we exchanged our phone numbers, and I start talk to them. After this visit, everything changed, related to the relation between the army and the authority, Lebanese authority, and the people inside the camp, including those extremist people. At the end, they are a human being, and you have to deal with them. And so you had begun that trust-building process, but later on there was an upsurge in violence that led to the destruction of the camp. So what actually happened? I'll tell you something. During the war in Nahr al-Barid, there were some, an accident took place on the gate of the camp, behind the camp. And then the man with a belt, explosive belt, uh, exploded himself. And we had two casualties among our soldiers. And I decided to bomb the camp. I have no solution. You yourself decided? Yeah, yeah, I decided to bomb it. But the story is, the next day, I went in the, into the camp and I gave condolences for the people inside the camp because they had a lot of casualties. I'm giving you an example how risky it was. But I have to do it. When you look back on that time, do you think that that was the only way that that situation could have been dealt with? Or do you think that a kind of a negotiation might have produced a similar outcome or, or that it no, was... No, I don't believe in closed door. If you keep the, the doors closed, it means that you will have the same result, conflict between the camp and its neighbors for decades, for more decades maybe. The mission of the UNIFIL, the UN forces in south of Lebanon, was affected by the camp situation because the road to the south for those forces, uniform forces, passed by the camp or next to the camp. So you have to come down the camp to facilitate the mission of the international forces in, in the country. It was a huge mission. When you look back on it, I assume there were some civilians who were who were killed as well from, from a result of that? And, and I don't think so. They were armed people because they used to go out of the camp every time we have, they have problem with, their, mm. uh, with the army. The, I mean the civilian. Let's move ahead to 2011 and you're appointed 
head of Lebanon's intelligence service, the general director of general security. And amongst many other responsibilities, you've been involved in a number of sensitive negotiations related to the release of detainees held in Syria and Iran. And a number of them have been American. Why do you think that the US would trust you to play such an important role with those detainees? First of all, they have to trust me. They need me. <laughs> the question, why do I have to trust them also? Both ways. Yeah. Look, I had uh, many, maybe major and minor mission that nobody knows about it. I, I believe that the Americans know about it, or they knew about it, and they knew how I work. And they know that I am sincere in any mission. So maybe that's why they trusted me. And they knew very, very well that I worked with the American embassy in Beirut to evacuate hundreds of civilian Americans from Syria during the last crisis. So you mentioned Syria. Let's talk about a particular case, if we can. Um, in 2019, you were working for the release of Sam Goodwin. This person was detained in northeast Syria and was released after having been held for, for two months. Uh, as was a Canadian tourist, uh, Christian Lee Baxter. Baxter, yeah. Yeah, who, who'd also been held in Syria for almost a year. Can you tell us something about one of those cases? Yeah, about Goodwin. I can tell you that the American government didn't ask me about his case. Who asked me about that is his family. Hmm. I had a relation with one Lebanese-American friend, and Goodwin's pa uh, parents know him very well, and they asked him to contact me and ask me for help. I worked on it with the Syrian authority and asked them to release him. Then they told me we have to go to the president. It took, uh, let's say, two months to free this guy. About Baxter, the, um, the Canadian, after the release of Goodwin, the Canadian embassy came over my office and the ambassador asked me to help on that because they have no news about these guys. These people were being held in Syria. What argument did you use with the Syrian authorities to yeah. persuade them that a release would be good for them, that it would be useful for them? Yeah, for sure. It's very useful for the Syrian authority to release innocent people. Those people had been charged by entering Syria illegally. That's it. They enter Syria without paper, without any legal uh, procedure. And they arrested them for that. But I want you to know at that time, if nobody asks about them, then maybe they will die in the prison. That's, that's simple in Syria. And you've done similar work uh, with the authorities in Iran. In 2015, a Lebanese national, Nizar Zaka, uh, was detained, accused of espionage. And eventually, in part through your mediation, uh, he was released in 2019. How and when did you approach the Iranians for his release? Yeah, at that time, I was uh, seriously sick at home. And Nizar's wife came over my home, and she was crying. And I was known as mediator in the country. She doesn't know that I can talk to the Iranian or no. So I promised her when I get back on my feet, I'll work on this case. The first thing that I did after that, 
I asked to see Nusrallah himself, the head of Hezbollah. And the people were wondering why I want to see Nusrallah. It's very strange and very weird question. I told him it's a personal issue and I wanted to see him. It was the first time meeting him. Then after two weeks, I got the answer and they took me to him. It was very hard to reach his place. It took about three hours by car. And when I see him, we spoke about politics, we spoke about everything, but at the end he asked me what you want exactly. I told him the story and I told him that Nizar's wife came over and she was crying and we need your help with the Iranian. And I told him I never been in Iran before, but I'm ready to go there. It's a humanitarian issue. I want to work on it. He didn't answer. He told me, okay, I got it. Then later on in two weeks, I got the response. How? The Iranian invited me in official way to Iran. I went there, I met the head of intelligence in Iran and many official people. Then at the end, they took me to Nizar. I met him in the prison. He was very aggressive against the Iranian who were there. I was worried about him, but he wasn't. He spoke very loudly and very hardly, and <laughs> maybe because he saw me, and he doesn't know that I have nothing to do with the Iranian. Then he asked me to take photo together. I said yes, and we sent this photo to the American embassy in Beirut. And the people went crazy at that time, seeing me with Nizar. Later on, I get a letter from Iran saying that we need official letter from your president to our president to solve this problem. I went to the president, President Town at that time, and asked him for this favor. He said, yes, for sure. He write it down. I send it to Iranian president. And the Iranian invited me again. And I went to see Nizar, and they told me, you will get Nizar with you this time. Hey, look, I want you to know something. I work on those cases just for humanitarian purposes. Mm. I don't get anything in return. The same story that I'm still working on it with Austin Tice. I'm still involved in this case also through the American government, but mainly with the family, with his family. Austin Tice, he's the American journalist who went missing in Syria in, in, in 2012. Years, uh, being detained by the Syrian government. Yeah. Why hasn't there been the same success in that case that you've had in other cases? Because it's a very big political paper that the Syrian are playing and the American are playing together. So it's a very complicated mm. case, but we're still working uh, work on it. I met President Assad and we spoke about that. And I believe that we are on the right track. I'd like to move now to your role in the deal signed between Lebanon and Israel in October 2022 to resolve their long-running dispute over ownership of gas fields under their shared maritime border. Yeah. The agreement gives the two sides rights to explore areas on either side of a demarcation line and has been seen by both sides as a major step forward. It is particularly since they don't have diplomatic relations and have technically been at war since 1948. When did you get involved in this negotiation? 
It starts in 2017, let's say, when the head of United Nations Forces came over my office. And he told me that I have a message from the Israeli and I wanted to talk to you. It was weird for me. I said, yes, what is it? He said the Israeli are very eager to talk to you. I said, no, I'm not allowed to talk to my enemy, so let's keep this indirect channel. He said, okay, they trust you, they trust your word, and they want to demark the land border with Lebanon, and they wanted you to be the negotiator. I said, okay, but it's a political decision. It has to be taken by the high-level politician in the country, including Hezbollah, because Hezbollah is in the ground there. He said, okay. And I asked him for one week. And later on, we had a meeting, and I said, okay, we'll go for it. Everybody says, okay. So we start this meeting. We have a delegation from the Lebanese army and from my service, general security. They went to the border, they met the Israelis, military people, in presence of UN forces. We have 13 disputed points on the ground. We solved seven out of it. These first meetings, I assume that's something that had to be kept very confidential at the time. Yes, it is. It is. It was very confidential. Then when it comes to the maritime issue, the Israeli refused to continue. So it takes till maybe 2021. The Israeli accepted that and they said, we're ready to talk about the maritime issue and the American interfere and the Ukrainian war made us as necessary as you can imagine to have the gas from the Middle East. So we start to talk about that. It was Saturday night when the American mediator Amos called me. Hezbollah launched drones over the Israelis' gas field. And Amos was very worried, and he called me. He said, General, what's going on in this house? I said, nothing. He said, but there are drones. I said, yes, I know. But I was waiting for you two weeks ago, and you disappeared. So those people wanted answers about your question. Ten minutes, he called me back from Washington. He said, you will get what you want. Call those people and tell them to freeze everything. I called them, I told them what happened, and I told them it's up to you to take the decision that you want to take it, but just please let me know what you want to do. In one hour, they get back to me and they said we freeze everything. Tell him our military activity is over now since uh, we get what the government wants. And Hezbollah, to be frank with you, play a role backing the government in this maritime issue, which is a very a significant and positive sign. And did you think that this agreement might lead to something further in the future in terms of managing the relationships between Lebanon and Israel, or you think that it will just stay 
solely on these maritime issues? I believe the first thing that we have to do it after the presidential election on having a new government is to go to the land border and draw it in official way. At that time, we will have no disputed point between us and the Israeli border. So the tension will not have cause to take place anymore. It's a very interesting career that you've had, General, because you, you began work in a part of Lebanon which was so central to the war with Israel, and then you end up negotiating this kind of agreement. Do you think that Israel will ever live at peace with its Arab neighbors? To be frank and open, I don't believe so. It's very hard to reach this goal. This is maybe it's our ambition to have it, but it's not, not easy to have it. We need generations to be convinced about that. Uh, the Israeli were very hostile against our people, especially in the north, uh, southern part of the country. And that's why Hezbollah is very popular there, because he's strong and he proved that he can face the Israeli forces and protect the Lebanese people in a thousand part of our territory. And it needs generation to reach this goal, but we hope so. And if we look at politics in the region more broadly, and let's think about the relationships between Saudi Arabia and Iran, you know, recently there was a deal between the two countries which was brokered in its final stages by China. What do you think that shows about the relevance of the US in Middle East peacemaking? Everybody knows that the Chinese are trying to play a major role in the Middle East these days, and the Saudis and the Iranians are facilitating this issue. You know very well that the Saudis are not in a very good term with the Americans these days. And they're trying to find an alternative ally to protect them, because Saudis always need protection. So. I believe that the American role is stepping back in the Middle East and the Chinese, they become the major player. But to prove that, we need long time. And in your various senior security positions, engaging with the West, the Gulf, Iran, non-state groups around the Middle East, when you look back on all of it, how do you evaluate the role of the West? Yeah, I believe that the West should be more fair especially with the Palestinian issues and Palestinian case. We have to solve the Palestinian case first of all, and I believe everything will be solved easily later on. The Western people or the Western country should play a major role on that. And their policies towards Iran and Syria, for example, do you think it's appropriate what the, how they've uh, calibrated their position? As I said before, I don't believe in closed doors. The Western policy towards Syria and Iran is wrong, totally wrong. I was against it, and I told them directly. I have many friends all over Europe, and I told them directly what you did, closing your embassies in Syria, let's talk about Syria, is a crime. You have to have this line of talk with Syria, or you become blind in Syria. Talking to Assad is something, and having your embassy is something else. 
if you consider Assad as criminal, don't talk to him, but stay there and watch what's going on and be a witness on what's going on. So it was a wrong policy and they have to change it. They have to change their strategic approach to Syria and to Iran. I believe that with force we cannot solve anything mm. in this world. We have to talk and talk and we have to sit around table and initiate dialogue between us. Even with your enemy, talking is very useful. And for yourself and your future, you've just stepped down, but you're still involved in Lebanon in many ways. Do you have political aspirations for the future? Yeah, for sure. I do. <laughs> <laughs> what would be your dream? If I, if I were to interview you this time next year and you come back to the Oslo Forum, I what title would you like to have? I dream on better country. Mm. How to have a better country how to solve our problem, how to get rid of corruption in this country. And Lebanese people are very ambitious. They are very strong, they are very proud. They are very successful people all around the world. Their priority should be to rebuild their country. And to reach this goal, we need a new politician to take over in this country. What uh, role would you like to have in, your, in the future to help your country? My first goal now is to rebuild bridges with other countries, with the Arab countries as brothers, with the Western as it used to be, to keep a good relation with Syria and Iran from other side. Uh, Lebanon has ability to play this role. Lebanon used to play this role between the country that they have problem among them. I'm going to ask you one last question, General. You have four children. I assume a few grandchildren yeah. too. Would you recommend for them a career in intelligence or mediation or politics? No, for sure. <laughs> none of the three. <laughs> Not of this. None Why of is this. That? None of this, no. No, I became from I can say my my, my family is rich. And my parents didn't want me to join the army in the beginning. They want me to go for business. And I wanted that for my children. <laughs> well, on that note, we must leave it. Abbas Ibrahim, thank you so much for being thank my you. guest. Thank you very much. And there we end this edition of The Mediator Studio. To get more episodes as they come out, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We always love to hear from you. So if you have views on anything you've heard, please get in touch via the listener survey in the show notes on our website. Or do drop me a message on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold and the producer is Chris Gunnis. Research for this episode was done by Noemi Blomer. Big thanks also to Lee Buidong for her support. Hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, from Oslo, this is Adam Cooper saying goodbye and thanks for listening.